0: this morning, we want to deal this week and next in the same series of suffering with the whole idea of healing. And in John chapter 9, we read, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, or his parents, that he was born blind, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this the one who sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Years ago when I lived in San Bernardino, California, and I was working on a degree in radiology at the local hospital, a friend of mine came an afternoon, knocked on the door. I hadn't seen him for years. His name was Tony. Tony had been backslidden. He made a commitment to Christ. He had backslidden and was involved in a lifestyle that he knew was not right and didn't glorify God. And he came to my house and he was emotionally beat up. And so I received him in. We had a great talk that afternoon, and he ended up recommitting his life to Jesus Christ. He repented of all of his past. He made a clean break, a fresh start, knowing that God was ready to receive him. One of the problems that had happened during his time of backsliding is Tony had been working uh, in a cement factory lifting heavy sacks of cement, and he was going up the stairs, and his arm slipped. The The bag with his arm went all the way over backwards. And he had had an accident with his radial nerve in his right arm. And the radial nerve was pinched and his hand was closed. He couldn't move it. It was in a position where he couldn't articulate his joints. And so he sort of froze and he couldn't do anything about it. Uh, That evening as we went to bed and he was so joyful, he said, Skip, good night, God bless you, see you tomorrow, thanks for listening. I said, hey, Tony, I'm glad you came by, God bless you. We were dozing off to sleep, lights were out. I just started whispering to the Lord. It was nothing dramatic. I just said, Lord, you know, there's nothing that restrains you from touching Tony's hand. If you wanted to right now, you could just touch him and heal him. And not for any reason other than to just demonstrate your love to him. And if it would be within your will. Now, as I'm praying this, I'm not doing anything dramatic. I didn't stand up and go, heal. I just laid there. I didn't even tell him what I was praying. In fact, To be honest with you, I was dozing off. I was kind of saying, and Lord, there's nothing too hard for you. And I just was praying like that. As I was dozing off to sleep, Tony jumps out of the bed, turns on the light, and goes with tears in his eyes, Skip, look. And he started moving freely his entire right hand. He went to his doctor the next day who was a believing doctor. And his doctor looked him over. He had had tests before, and he said, this is a bona fide work of God. God healed him miraculously. A few months later, a friend of mine in the same town was put in the hospital with a diagnosis of cancer. The cancer was spreading rapidly to his lungs, through his brain, his lymphatic system. I mean, it overtook him in a matter of weeks. He asked me to come by and pray for him. I went by and I prayed for him. I laid my hands on Jerry. I asked God to touch him and to heal him. Chuck Smith came by, laid his hands on him, prayed for him. He died. He went to heaven. A couple years after that, I was involved in an accident, a skateboarding accident. I was going off of the lip of this swimming pool, kind of serves me right, trying to make one of those fancy turns that the kids were doing, and I just didn't make it, and I landed off. Hit my left shoulder, and I had an AC, a chromioclavicular separation. Working in the hospital, I had it x rayed the next day, and they set it in a sling so it couldn't be moved. It was immobilized. And I saw that separation on film. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just, I'll work, it'll work out, I'll live with it. One evening at my friend's apartment, again, we were praying, and very nonchalantly, very low keyed kind of a manner, Jack just said as we were praying for different people, Oh, yes, Lord. If you wouldn't mind, would you just touch Skip's shoulder? And I just said, yeah, right, yeah, amen. I I did not, I wasn't filled with faith. But I did experience at that moment in my own body the complete cessation of pain. And I took my arm out of my sling and I was able to completely articulate it all the way around. I went back to the hospital the next day and had it x-rayed to verify it. And the separation in the AC joint had diminished. A couple years ago here at Calvary Chapel, a woman called me and said, I'm coming in. I'd like you to pray for me. She sat in my office and she said, I have a disease, but I know, I believe that God is going to heal me. I know that after you pray, after I walk out of this room, that I'm going to be healed. I said, hey, well, let's go. I gathered a few of the elders together and we prayed with all the faith in the world seeing this woman's great faith in her Savior, that God would touch her. And she walked out of the office that day not healed. Now, when I see a sick person, I pray for that person. I pray that God would touch that person, that God would heal that person. Sometimes they're healed. Sometimes they die. And I've been perplexed with that over the years. A man came into my office a couple weeks ago, sat down rather disturbed. He said, you're not preaching the Word. I said, I'm not preaching the Word. Why is that? Well, you're not really preaching the full Word of God. That all of God's children can always be healed whenever they receive God's healing by faith and cast sin out of their lives. Are you saying that Everybody can be healed no matter what disease they have, if they're God's child. Absolutely, he said. I said, what about Paul the Apostle, who prayed three times and God said no? What about Timothy, who was told to take medicine for his stomach? What about Job, the most righteous man in the earth, who wasn't healed? He said, well, even these men at that point were not living up to the life of faith that they should be living. Now, that is just a rehash of what many of the false teachers today are saying about Paul and Timothy and Job. In fact, one recently said, when are we all going to wake up and learn that God did not allow the devil to get on Job? Job allowed the devil to get on Job by negative confession. Another one said that Job is a carnal bad boy and a big mouth. And another one said that Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 was a result of negative confession. Now, there's a polarization into two camps within the church. And many times, instead of living in balance, we want to be polarized to one view or the other view without seeing that there are truths held in tension together. In one camp, you have the cessationists, those that say the miracles of the New Testament have ceased with the apostolic age. Oh, it happened with Paul and with Peter and all the apostles. Miracles happened, but they stopped today. That's the dispensational viewpoint. We don't see them today. Don't expect them. They never will happen. That was popularized by a guy named B.B. Warfield in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I disagree with that position for biblical reasons and for experiential reasons. I've seen too much. I've watched God heal people. In the other camp, the hyper-faith camp, which oftentimes is faith in faith rather than faith in God, is the camp that says, if you are a child of God, you have a clean relationship with God, and you ask and receive by faith, you will always be healed. I disagree with that camp both on biblical theological reasons and experimental, experiential reasons. I've seen too much. I've seen people with great faith and clean lives not be healed, and I've watched pagan unbelievers who defy God walk in perfect health, like Asaph did in Psalm 73. That position of hyperfaith elevates man, and it dethrones God as to his sovereignty it puts all of the control within my lap my power for me to confess for me to believe and it takes away from the sovereignty of God folks God is not our heavenly butler our page boy who art in heaven he is a loving heavenly father who knows better than you or i do what he's about and he knows what's good for us when he says yes to some things and when he says no to some things. And to teach that Christians can always be healed and always claim this will be a perfect prescription to failure and depression and guilt when the things that they confessed don't happen. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I believe in balance. Well, are you a fundamentalist or a charismatic? I'm a fundamentalist I'm a mentalist. <laughs> I see the truth of both camps, but I would not put myself necessarily in either one of them altogether. God is restless in the face of human suffering. God is merciful and faithful toward His creation. He does often heal, but there are times when He does not. In John chapter 9... As we go through this story, this is a beautiful story of the time when Jesus graciously did. In verses 1 and 2, let's look at the malady of blindness this man had. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Blindness was very common in the Middle East especially in ancient times, for many reasons. First of all, the poverty level was pervasive. And because of unsanitary conditions that lent itself to the spreading of germs and bacteria, there were many people who got eye infections and caused a progressive blindness. Secondly, the sunlight in that part of the world is intense, sort of like the sunlight in this part of the world. But in those days, they didn't have Ray-Ban sunglasses or protective devices for the eyes. They were subject to the elements And mixed the bright sunlight with blowing sand, sometimes eye injuries, and eye disease was very prevalent. But more often than not, the cause of blindness was blindness from birth, infantile blindness, a condition known as ophthalmia neonatorum, or gonorrhea of the eyes. And what happens is that the woman can carry, unbeknownst to her, bacterium in her body, a gonorrhea infection. She doesn't know about it. And as the baby is born and passes through the birth canal, the conjunctiva in the eyes, that mucous membrane surrounding the eyelids inside, can pick up the bacterium. And within three days, the eyes are running with pus. Within weeks, there is total blindness. Today, of course, when babies are born, they put an antiseptic cream in the eye to change that. Um, when a person was blind, there was no good welfare system. They were usually outcasts of the temple, out of the city. They would sit outside the gates and beg from the people who would come in, living off the generosity of those who would enter the temple or enter into a city. Now, as they see this man, the disciples ask a question. Verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples walk by and see this man as a philosophical, theological problem. You know, it's interesting It's a lot easier for us to deal with abstract situations like sin rather than to get down and minister to a person who has a great need. Secondly, it's natural whenever suffering does occur to think, did I do something wrong? It's sort of natural that we think that. Some catastrophe happens, some suffering. What did I do wrong, God? Are you punishing me for this? When my brother died in a motorcycle accident, my father for years lived under the grief of guilt that the reason he died is because there was something that was wrong between dad and his son. He lived with that guilt for a long time. It's unnecessary and untrue, but oftentimes it's natural. They asked the question, who sinned? Though he was born blind. Now the Jews at that time had some assumptions whenever they saw a disease. Now let me give these assumptions to you and you see if they fit into any thinking today. You find that many assumptions are still made. Number one, some of the Jews believed in prenatal sin. That is, the embryo could even sin, causing an anomaly when that child is born. Secondly, some of the Jews believed in reincarnation, the preexistence of the soul, that the soul lived before God created the earth looking for a body. And that if that soul did something wrong, this is according to Plato and the Greeks and some of the Jews picked it up, that that child would be born with a physical anomaly. And, of course, today a lot of people believe in reincarnation. It's sort of the hip philosophy. Oh, if I mess up in this life, I've got another chance. And what's funny is that people in this country look at reincarnation as sort of cool. It's the novel thing to believe in. Did you know that the people who invented it, the Hindus, don't see reincarnation as a blessing but a curse? The idea is to escape the cycles of birth and death and to get out and be an unembodied soul, not an embodied one. You know, actually, if you think about it, who would want to be reincarnated? I mean, there are certain things in life I never want to go through again, like ninth grade or eleventh grade algebra. You know, I don't want to face those things again. But some of them believed in it at that time. Then there were those Jews who believed that if a parent sinned, the result could be in the child. Some secret sin, some harboring iniquity, that the sin would be meted out in the life of a child in punishment. Now, to some degree, that could happen. For instance, if parents get involved in promiscuity and they get a venereal disease, it's possible for them to pass on through the bloodstream that disease to their child. But that's not always the case, and you can't apply it to every sick person that you see. Then there were those Jews who believed in a direct cause and effect. That is, whenever you see suffering, it's the direct result of sin in that person's life. Who does that sound like? Job's friends. Remember, they said, whoever perished being innocent. The idea was that uh, uh, God will punish you directly if you sin. Now, that also can happen in certain cases. Here's an example. Let's say a guy goes out and gets drunk. And it's a uh, snowy, icy day, and he runs across a parking lot at the mall, and in this drunken stupor, he falls down, breaks his leg. The broken leg is a direct result of the transgression of getting drunk. And let's say he forgets about the gash that's in his leg, and he goes on, and it gets infected, and his leg has to be amputated, and he even gets pneumonia. It would be wrong for him to shake his fist to God and say, why did you do this to me? That would be a direct cause and effect. But you can't take any four of these things, most of them are wrong anyway, and apply them when you see a disease and say, oh, it's because he sinned. Oh, it's his parents who sinned. Oh, it's something happened in a previous lifetime. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, all disease, all suffering, is the result of sin indirectly. We are products of the fall that happened in the Garden of Eden. And we live in a sin-cursed world. But to look at somebody who has a disease and give them a blanket, oh, it's because you have sinned. God is doing this to you. Seeing God as this big bully ready to pounce on you is ridiculous. But the disciples say, who sinned? Notice Jesus' answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now the idea isn't that they're sinless. The idea is that their sin did not cause this but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we see the malady, the blindness. They're trying to figure it out. Now we see the motivation of Jesus healing the man, his love and compassion. You see the difference? The disciples are asking a theological question. Uh, Who sinned here? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. That's not the issue. I don't want to debate and discuss a philosophical, theological premise. This man needs my help. And while it is day, I will work. The night is coming. What does he mean? He means that he has an allotted, prescribed period of time given to him by the Father while he'll be on this earth. And he sees that the cross is approaching. Night is coming. And he's going to be taken off of the earth. And while it is day... And while he has the opportunity, he's going to reach down and touch this man. Now, many of the miracles Jesus performed were performed to authenticate the fact that he was the Messiah. To prove that he was the Son of God. Jesus said, if you won't believe my words, then believe me for the very works' sake themselves. You've seen the works. You've seen the miracles. They prove, as predicted in Isaiah, in the Scripture that I am who I say I am. Jesus reached down and touched this man because he loved him. He saw that there was a need. He's restless in the face of human suffering and in compassion he reached down to heal him. That never changes, folks. The attitude of God toward us is always love, always compassion. To the person he heals it's love and compassion to the person he doesn't heal it's still a heart of love and compassion sometimes he says yes sometimes he says no he said yes to this man he said no to paul the apostle in second corinthians 12 he said no to timothy in the in the epistle of timothy he said no to job but his heart was still a heart of love you know my son will come to me often and I think I need more children, actually. I use him as an illustration almost every week. I think I need more illustrations here. (laughs) Poor Nathan will grow up as, oh, yes, I'm Dad's illustration. (laughs) But oftentimes he'll ask me for something. Frequently he'll ask me for something. And there are times when I'll give in to him. Not because he twists my arm or he raises his voice. I do it because I love him. I want to see him blessed. But you know, there are times when he asks me for things and I say, no. And he will respond, please, daddy, please. I'll work it off the rest of my life. Please just let me have that one thing. It's all I'll ever ask for. Nathan, no, a hundred times no. I don't love him any less when I say no to him than I do when I say yes to him. Now, God will graciously entertain our prayers. He will listen to us. As we come to him by faith, he'll hear us. But God never said the mark of true spirituality is that you don't sneeze. That's never a mark of true spirituality. Or if you do sneeze, it's because there's sin in your life. Now, question. If God is so loving and God can heal, why doesn't he do it all the time? And some of that we're going to discuss a little more next week as we look at a text of Scripture, Healing in the Atonement, and 2 Corinthians 12. But that's an interesting question. Why doesn't God always heal? We could look at it a step further. Why in John chapter 5, when Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda, did he walk over all the rest of those sick people and single out one of them to be glorified in? A lot of people don't read that, who say God heals all the people all the time. We read about, first of all, that this man was not a believer. This man did not have faith. And it says there at the pool of Bethesda, there was a multitude of sick folk, lame folk, and paralyzed Jesus walked over all of them, singled out one man, performed a healing, and then he left. Why didn't God hear Paul the Apostle when three times he asked for healing? Why didn't God hear Timothy? Paul performed many great miracles of healing. And yet Paul says, Timothy, I know you've got a stomach ailment. Take some medicine for it. Take a little wine for your often disease or infirmity's sake. What about Elijah in the Old Testament? Elijah, who received the double portion of God's anointing, a man of great miracles. And yet the Bible says, and again, people skip over this, Elisha died of the disease whereof he died. God said no to him. What about Trophimus? Paul said, I have left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Dr. Billy Graham said that there could be many reasons why God allows suffering and even sickness in the life of a Christian. Christians suffer, Billy Graham says, number one, because they're humans. Number two, because of chastisement, perhaps, because we disobey God. Number three, to discipline. Number four, to lead us to the Bible. Number five, to deepen our fellowship with God. And number six, to teach us patience. Now, the scriptures do teach that God can use sickness to serve his purpose. I think if you're honest with yourself, you'd admit that it wasn't until you were flat on your back and God got your attention that you learned certain lessons in your life. You see many people in the Bible who did that. David was one of them. For the sake of simplification, simplifying this, I would say that there's three general reasons why God would allow sickness God would allow suffering in the life of a Christian in terms of a a sickness or disease. Number one is a corrective reason. Corrective. That is to get you back on the right path. That's the reason that parents give spankings. Do you think parents enjoy spanking their children? Now, if they're a little demented, of course, they would. But generally, good parents don't like it. Do you think they sort of fight over who's going to spank him? No, it's my turn to spank him. You spank him last time. It's my turn. Bleh. Not at all. They do it out of great love. They want to teach that child through correction that that child cannot go his own way. C.S. Lewis said, pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. David said in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Did you get that? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's the whole idea of Hebrews chapter 12, chastisement. Hebrews 11 talks about heroes of faith. They did great exploits of faith, but others were tormented, tortured, afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy. And he says, we also follow a suffering Savior. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Lord for whom the Lord loves, He corrects, or He chastens. Secondly, we may suffer for constructive reasons. God gets the sandpaper out, sees a few rough edges, starts sanding us down. It's the whole idea of the furnace that we talked about last week with Job. When I am tried, I'll come forth as what? Gold. I'm being tried in the furnace. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, the Lord said, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And James in the New Testament said, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance have its perfect work, that you might be entire, mature, and complete, not lacking anything. Would you turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter twelve for just a moment? This is the text we're going to look at more in depth next week, but just look at it for a moment. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. In verse 7, the apostle said, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh, literally in Greek, a stake, a large stake in the flesh, in his body, was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. You say, oh good, it's a messenger of Satan. You cast it out, you claim the healing, and it's over, right? Well, let's go on. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now listen to what Paul says. This is something you'd never see most faith teachers proclaim. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my sicknesses, infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs, in persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. He asked God three times to heal him. What God say? No. That's what he said. My grace is sufficient. And God had a purpose in saying no. Now, was it because Paul lacked faith? Was it because there was some gross sin in his life? Bunk. Do you see how that undermines the authority of Scripture to read something like that into it? Well, he wasn't living in the height of faith like he should have. What that does, it undermines the authority of Scripture, takes the control away from sovereign God and places it within the person who would or would not exercise faith. And that steals away from the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, a reason we could suffer is found in our text for celebrative purposes. That is to give glory and praise unto the Lord. This man's blindness was a sovereign act of the Lord to reveal, Fanarothé, to bring forth and reveal the glory of God. Four times in this chapter, after he's healed, he didn't even know who healed him. He didn't have great faith. Four times afterwards, people ask him, Who did it? Who touched you? Who healed you? The first time he said, A man called Jesus. That's all he knew. The second time he said, Oh, he's a prophet. Of course, he was then rebuked by the Pharisees. A third time he said, this is a man of God. He's getting closer to the right answer. Finally, he meets with Jesus again. And he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And he bowed down to worship Him. And Jesus uses the whole event to give a story to many people about physical blindness versus spiritual blindness. When Jesus healed this man... God was glorified. But I would say God was more glorified not when this man could see, but when this man was saved. Hey, it's a great miracle to have your eyes opened. It's a greater miracle to have your heart opened. In fact, if your eyes are opened apart from your heart being opened, what good does it do to enter into eternity whole without Christ? That's what Jesus said. It's better even to enter into eternity maimed than to enter into damnation whole. And it gave glory to the Lord. Does God allow suffering? Certainly He does. For what purpose? I don't always know. But I know this, and I fall back on it a lot. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I can live with the fact that my grace, says the Lord, is sufficient for my need. That's why Samuel Rutherford, in one of his writings, said, Why should I tremble? at the plow of my Lord that makes deep furrows in my soul. I know that he's no idle husbandman. He is purposing a crop. You know, Steinway knew that, the maker of Steinway pianos. He took 243 strings, stretched it over an iron frame with 40,000 pounds of pressure. Proof that out of great pressure can come great harmony. Proof in Job's life that out of great pressure can come great harmony. And Paul's life and Timothy's life. Oh, he heals. Oh, he does. But he doesn't always. To deny that truth, you'd have to rip out many texts of the Scripture. So we've seen the malady. That's blindness. We've seen the motivation for the healing. That's love and compassion. The night is coming. I'm going to work. Now look at the method of his miracle. Verse 6. When he said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, anointed his eyes, the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. You'd want to after that. (laughs) So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. I hear that every 20 minutes someone goes blind in America. This man was born blind. He never saw God's creation. He never saw the faces of the people that he loved. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times a few years back about Anna Mae Penica was her name, an elder lady who was born blind. She had a congenital anomaly, a rare cataract on her eye. She uh, had never seen blue sky, green grass. But there was a doctor in Los Angeles, Thomas Pettit, who performed ophthalmological surgery. He performed the surgery to remove the cataracts, and she eventually could see. And she writes to the Los Angeles Times, the thrill of being able to see for the first time. She said, it's hard for me to sleep at night. I'd love to get up in the morning and just see how blue, blue is and how green the trees are. And he said, she said, the shock was seeing my friends. I thought that they would be taller or thinner than they really are or that they would be heavier. I didn't quite picture them that way, but now I can see them. And she even went to pass her driving test and got her driving license. She was just thrilled. Imagine what this guy went through. It wasn't a surgery. It was just he wipes it out of his eyes. Instant sight. Awesome. But you've got to wonder at the methods of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons I love this text. Jesus puts saliva in his hands, mixed it with a little dirt made mud and put it in his eyes. Now, I've never seen this in healing lines or on television. I've seen anointing cloths and little oil and people blowing on other people, but this would be a new novel one. In fact, I doubt many people would want to come forward if this is the case. Have a bunch of saliva and mud and just kind of put it on people's eyes. But Jesus did it, and he told them to go wash, and he was healed. Here's my point. As I read the healing miracles in the New Testament of Jesus, each one of them was different. He didn't have a method He doesn't say yea verily or shout and jump or go. (gasps) He just does it differently each time. Example, in Jericho, two men were blind. They cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus turned around and said, what do you want? We want our eyes open. And so he touched their eyes. He touched them and they became healed. There was another time where a woman... As Jesus was walking through the streets and crowds of people were around him, she thought, who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, if I touch just the tip, the edge, the tassel of his garment, I'm going to be healed. I know it. And that hem became a trigger to release her faith. She touched the hem of his garment while people are all around him, and she was instantly miraculously healed. And Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? The disciples disciple said, uh, everybody touched you. You've got crowds of people swarming you. And you ask who touched you? Jesus said, no, but I perceive power has gone out for me. This is a different touch. This is a touch of faith. And he turned to the woman and said, rejoice. Your faith has made you whole. And so there were people who came with great faith knowing that they would be healed. Then there was the nobleman's son who was sick at home. And Jesus didn't touch. Jesus didn't have a garment. It was a long-distance miracle. He just said, go back home. Your son lives. Then there was the time where Jesus was in Galilee at the town of Bethsaida. And there was a blind man, and Jesus saw him, and Jesus asked the man to come out of town. Get out of town with me. Come out of the city. Probably because of what he was about to do. It said that Jesus took the man outside of town and spit right in his eyes. <laughs> Again, I wouldn't see that on many televangelist shows, I don't think. And after Jesus spit in his eyes, he said, What do you see? And he opened up his eyes and he said, I see men, they look like walking trees. And so it says Jesus touched the man twice again. And it was a more complete healing. It was a progressive healing. It was not instantaneous. Here's my point. He was unpredictable. He healed when he wanted, how he wanted, and where he wanted. There weren't people who just stood there and said... Here's the one, two, three formula. It's going to work. You can never confine God to a box. You cannot manipulate sovereign will. He healed. He still heals. But He does it His time, His way, His method. Nor can you command God. He is not room service. You don't dial up 777 Get God on the line and say, God, I command this and I speak this into existence. Excuse me, but you're talking to God here. He's not your heavenly bellboy. He's sovereign God. We should approach God in faith, absolutely. But we should always rest at His sovereign feet. Always. I have a paper in my study on how to get healed. I've kept it and I've looked over it several times. I got it at a certain kind of a meeting and it talks about the formula of how to be healed. You pray by faith, you read faithful literature, and you read these scriptures every day. And then after you're healed, the other side says how to keep your healing so it doesn't go away. And you do the same thing. You read those scriptures over and over again. And it says if you have the symptoms of the disease still, you ignore them. You don't receive them. You don't make a negative confession. You just say, I'm healed, because the devil's trying to fight you with symptoms. I had a man come up to me once with a broken ankle. He was hobbling. And I knew him, and I, I said, What happened? And I'm just trying to make conversation and comfort and maybe pray with him. He said, I had a broken ankle, but I'm healed. You are healed? Or you will be. I am healed, he said. This is a symptom, and I'm not receiving it. As he hobbled away, and I thought, you know, whatever you do, don't tell anybody that God did this to you. Don't say God healed you. Especially don't tell a non-Christian, God healed me, because the non-Christians going to think, your God does sloppy work. (laughs) Do you ever read of that in the New Testament? No. When Jesus healed people, they were healed. They didn't have to make any confession after that. They were walking and leaping and praising God. It was real, and it was bona fide. Okay, let's conclude this study this morning. There's a few important thoughts that we should walk away with. Number one, healing is a wonderful gift and blessing from a loving God. Many in the Old Testament were miraculously instantly healed. Many in the New Testament miraculously instantly healed. Many people today, and I've seen them, and I'm a recipient of it, have been instantaneously and miraculously healed. But not everyone is. Elijah wasn't, Timothy wasn't, Paul wasn't, Trophimus wasn't. Secondly, it is fallacy to approach every malady with a simplistic blanket. Who sinned, him or his parents? To say that it's a result directly of sin is a fallacy. To say that there's something out of whack in your relationship with God is a fallacy. Thirdly, now I know this is obvious again, everyone that Jesus healed got healed. They didn't have to have a paper and read over and over again, not receiving the symptoms that they were still feeling. They knew they were healed and everybody else knew it too. When Lazarus was risen from the dead, he didn't say, no, I feel dead, but I believe I'm alive. Hey, he was alive and everybody knew it. This man was going to the temple and they knew that he was healed. What should we do? And this brings us to our fourth and final concluding point. We ought to pray for healing. We ought to. The New Testament encourages us to come before the Lord by faith and to ask and pursue physical healing. There are many scriptures that point to that. We ought to come and pursue the Lord for healing, but eventually, finally, and I know that a lot of teachers don't like to say this, we ought to say, Lord, thy will be done. Oh, they'll tell you, if you say thy will be done, that's a negative confession. It is the Lord's will for you to be healed. You never have to say thy will be done. Well, excuse me, Jesus said thy will be done. Did that make him unspiritual? James said, we will do this and that tomorrow if the Lord wills. Was he unspiritual? I think it's a little arrogant to say this is God's will and never to say thy will be done. John said, this is the confidence that we have before God. If we ask anything, listen, according to His will, He hears us, and we know that we have the petitions we've desired of Him. The overarching principle in the Scripture is the sovereignty of God. And that ought to make you rejoice. That God is in control. And you ought to rejoice that God doesn't give you everything you ask for. You'd be in terrible shape if God gave you everything you asked for. I've asked God for some pretty stupid things in the past. I think of Hezekiah. The prophet said, Hezekiah, get your house in order. You're going to die, buddy. This is the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, you're going to die and not live. Hezekiah prayed and wept that God would spare his life. And he begged. And God gave him what he requested. Fifteen more years. But you know what? Those fifteen more years were the worst years of his life. They were the worst. He fell deeper into sin. He birthed Manasseh, who was the most wicked king Judah ever saw. It would be better to say, Lord, your will be done. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to die and not live. Fine. Your timing is best. I remember I was dating a young gal. She was gorgeous. I wanted to marry her. I wanted I prayed that this would be the one and things didn't work out in the relationship. I prayed, Oh God, please, I want to marry her and God said no. I was bummed out at him. But I saw her several years later. She's still walking with the Lord. But I did say, Oh Lord, thank you. You know best. Father, you know best. Thank you for Lenya. She's everything that I needed by your grace. In fact, Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, said if God had answered every prayer of mine, I would have married the wrong man seven times. (laughs) Hey, I thank the Lord that he's sovereign when I claim or pray or apply any formula. He'll say yes, yes, no, no. I was reading a book this week that I thought brought great balance. It's by George Malone called Those Controversial Gifts of the Spirit. And he calls the church back to a ministry of healing and praying for the sick. He calls us back to a New Testament model of praying for those who have physical needs. And he says, though a move of the Spirit is controlled by God, not us, there are certain things we can do to prepare for that move. We can be in prayer that God would move in a fresh and a new way by His power in our lives. We can start reading the Scripture, especially a fresh look at the four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles where these things took place. And then he says we should read balanced literature, balanced books that speak about the gifts of the spirit and healing and so forth. But he concludes his chapter with this. He says Matt Matthew was a fine high school athlete. On one of the first plays from the scrimmage, Matt thrust himself at an approaching fullback. There was a snap followed by the immediate loss of all physical sensation. Matt, the linebacker, had now become Matt, the quadriplegic. Many people visited Matt over the ensuing months and prayed for his healing. One even prostrated himself before his bed and claimed he would never move until Matt was healed. Eventually, he walked out again. But Matt did not. In spite of all of the misdirected zeal of many Christians, Matt's faith and courage grew. Those of us who enjoy life in relative health can place an unbearable burden on those who suffer. Our prayers for healing can have a threatening and condemning effect unless we offer them with humility, love, and support. With our practice of the healing ministry, we must build a parallel theology of suffering, not as to place as a place to hide when healing does not come, but as a way of understanding another mode of the work of God in the lives of his people, and that is suffering. Jesus has become to us the wounded healer. And our own lives will no doubt be a reflection of his, both wounded and healed. Both wounded and healed. Does God heal? Oh, I've seen too much to say otherwise. Does he always heal? No. He is sovereign. Am I going to be so arrogant as to say, I know all the reasons why? No. Am I going to be so arrogant to say, Well, it's because you don't have enough faith or because there's sin in your life? No. I look at too many godly men and women in the New Testament who were godly and resigned in certain times to episodes of pain. Folks, let's shift the focus. God heals. But the greatest miracle is the opening of the heart, not the eyes. If your heart isn't open this morning to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the crucial issue, is that you become born again, that you go to heaven, and you don't go to heaven by being healed, but by being spiritually healed, by accepting Christ into your life.